Today we'll be talking about a very heavy topic, uh, marriage and divorce, and we'll get right into it, but before that, just one thing I wanted to open with is that um, I know that in this room there are people with, we have tons of different types of stories and backgrounds and histories at work in the room. Some of you are married, some of you are divorced, some of you have divorced and remarried. We have widows and widowers. We have some of you who are single, some of you who are single and you don't wanna be single. Some of you are single and you wanna remain single. And so we have all those different backgrounds and stories and histories at play. And I say that because um, there'll be times today where you might be tempted to to think something is, is, is right at you or that there's an intent to, to guilt or to shame and, and none of that is the case. What I wanna do today is look at the words of Jesus and come under the authority of our Lord. And I, I'm gonna do my best to articulate what the words of Jesus are saying so that we as believers can, whether we like it or not, willfully submit to his wonderful will for our lives. So on that, let's dig in. Matthew chapter 19. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now there's two uh, opening details that are, that are important. One, it says after he had finished these sayings. Well, what sayings? If you remember, Jesus was asked who's the greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus responds to that. Then he gives a parable about a lost sheep. Then he gives teaching on church discipline. And then he gives a parable on the unforgiving servant. So after all of that talk and discussion, Jesus is now presented with this question. But he's presented with this question with a geographical detail. It says that he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, sometimes in scriptures, uh, geographical details are just thrown out to give you a sense of direction what's going on. But sometimes, they're loaded with information. If you were here, here several weeks ago, you might remember there was a time where Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi. And just in that little detail alone, there's a wealth of information. So what's going on with this? He goes south to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Here's a map of Israel. I know it's hard to see. You're not gonna be able to get all the details, but the big picture of it will, will be sufficient. On the top, you're gonna to see a body of water. It's, it's the smaller body of water towards the north next to the kind of purple. Uh, that's the Sea of Galilee. And if you go all the way south from that line, you're gonna run into a bigger body of water, which is the Dead Sea. Now, this is Israel, but you see there's multiple colors on this map. And that has to do with who's ruling which region because there's not one king over all of Israel at this time. Prior to this, Herod the Great had a more unified kingdom, but at his death, his rule was split up into different sections. Some called it a tetrarchy, meaning there's four different rulers. So there's that kind of salmon color in the bottom to the left. I know there's probably some color snobs among you. I did my best. I spent a lot of time thinking about what to call that color. The first draft of the sermon, it was reddish, orangish, brownish, um, but then I landed on salmon. So that was in the region of Herod Archelaus. And then there's a region for Herod Philip and Herod Antipas. Now, an important detail is that Jesus is up in the northern region and he's traveling down to the south. And it says he goes to the region of Judea. 
Now, Judea would be going into that salmon color for the reign of Herod Archelaus. However, it says he goes south to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, the Jordan River is hard to see, so I highlighted it here for you. At the top is the Sea of Galilee. Jordan River River travels down to the Dead Sea. So Jesus goes south into Judea. However, he goes to the side beyond the Jordan. Now, this was a phrase referring to the east of the Jordan, to where you see the, the purple territory. Now, why is that important? The purple is the region that is ruled by Herod Antipas. And it's confusing, and if you don't know your geography, it's even more confusing, because you see that the two purple regions have colors in between them. So there's actually geogra- there's like land between the two regions that Herod Antipas ruled. It'd be like if there was one ruler in California who also happened to rule Colorado. It's like, hey, there's some states in between. Nevertheless, at the time of Jesus, if you're familiar with the geography of that, of that world, you know the region that Herod Antipas ruled. So Jesus goes south into the geographic region of Judea, but he goes south beyond the Jordan to the political region of Herod Antipas. So geographically, he's in Judea, but if you're talking about political territories, he's in the region ruled by Herod Antipas. Why is that important? What do we know about Herod Antipas from the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew chapter 14. Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded because he condemned the unlawful marriage of Herod Antipas. Now Jesus travels south beyond the Jordan to the region of Herod Antipas, and what do you know? He's asked a question by the Pharisees. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So you see what's going on. This is a possible life and death situation. And it's worse because it's a loaded question, a controversial question, both then and now. One of the important details you have to be familiar with is that divorce at this time was primarily taking place when men divorced their wives. In Israel, in this time period, women were were generally not afforded the ability to divorce their husband. It was a rare occurrence in rare cases and very difficult. So for the most part, this is a debate about when a man is able to divorce his wife. Now, there's all kinds of debate in first century Israel about what gives the man a right to divorce his wife. There's different schools of thoughts. And again, at this time period, culturally, this is an issue centered on men's ability to divorce their wives. So, what are the schools of thought? What are people teaching? One rabbinical house, rabbinical school of thought from Rabbi Shammai said, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. In other words, adultery. Now, this is the conservative view of the time. The opposite view of that was from the house of Hillel. Rabbi Hillel said he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. Now, you can, uh, you can take a guess at what became the dominant popular view of the day. 
So much so that later, Rabbi Akiba would say he may divorce her even if he found one prettier than she. Good night, everybody. Now, all of these people are basing their opinions upon their interpretation of a verse in the Old Testament, in the Torah, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24 reads this way. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and then I put dot, 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 and you can go read this on your own, but Deuteronomy 24 goes on for quite some time and brings up a specific situation. It's a hypothetical situation, but a very real occurrence in the time of Deuteronomy. And it's describing what happens when a woman is divorced and then she remarries another man and that man either divorces her or dies and she becomes a widow and then the original husband tries to come back and claim her as his wife. And so what Deuteronomy is addressing is they're saying, no, 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 this woman gets a certificate of divorce, meaning there was a legal divorce initiated so that if her next husband dies or divorces her, there's not a claim by the original husband saying, well, no, no, you have to come back. And so it's a very complex situation. You could read it on your own Deuteronomy 24. But all the complexity of that passage is almost irrelevant to the debate because what everyone is focusing on is what's underlined. All the debates rest upon what does it mean when the husband finds an indecency in her? Because depending upon how you define indecency in her, that is what they were saying gives you the right to divorce her. So for Rabbi Shammai, it's only adultery. For Hillel, she spoils a dish. Akiba, if you find one fairer or prettier than she. Now what does Rabbi Jesus say? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man let not man separate. Jesus bypasses Deuteronomy 24. It's like, I'm not even gonna address that issue. We're going all the way back to creation. And he says, you look at creation and what is established there. There is a one flesh union that God said he brings together, therefore no man separates. Now Jesus is pulling upon the deep narrative structure of Genesis chapters one and two. And if you've been coming here for some time, you've heard me talk about what we're gonna talk about several times. And if you've ever been at a wedding that um, I, I was gonna say I host, I perform the ceremony, you've heard me talk about this. And I talk about it a lot because it's incredibly important, not just for understanding marriage, but for understanding, again, the narrative structure of scripture. And as, as, you, as you could see from that, that narrative structure of scripture informs our understanding of the created order. So Jesus goes all the way back and says, no, no, you don't go to Deuteronomy. You gotta go back to the beginning. And in that, we see God creating the world. But God creates the world following a pattern. Now the pattern's easy to miss primarily because when we as modern people read Genesis 1 and 2, 
Most of our questions are dealing with like, how does Genesis um, relate to modern science and the discoveries of, 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 of kind of current technology and science? And those are fine questions to ask, but you can get so focused on modern questions that you neglect to see some of the most obvious, formative, powerful information Genesis is trying to communicate. So when you get to Genesis 1, God creates heaven and earth, and he creates it in subsequent with days, in days following one after the other. And in each day, God introduces a pair of what we call functionally different equal opposites. And what I mean by that is there's a pair and they're different, but they come together in some type of union, and when they do so, they help create an environment for the flourishing of humanity. So on day one, you have light and darkness, and they form a day. On day two, you have the water below and the waters above. On day three, you have the seas and the dry land. Day four, you have the greater light and the lesser light. That's the sun and the moon. So again, they are they're functionally different. One gives light to the day, one gives light to the night. They're functionally different, equal opposites that come together in harmony that then help create an environment for the flourishing of humanity. Day five, there's animals under the water and the animals above. And then this pattern continues until you get to the last day, which is the pinnacle pair. The, the ending of the pattern of functionally different equal opposites. And this last pair is fundamentally different than all the other pairs because they are made in the image of God. They are filled with the breath and life of God himself. Now, if you're paying really close attention to that pattern, land, sea, darkness, light, moon, sun, when man is introduced, you're immediately expecting the opposite pair to be found. But in Genesis 2, the story kind of gives you a cliffhanger because man's introduced in Genesis chapter 2, but there's no woman. And the story goes on. You're going like, well, where's the functionally different equal opposite? Like, what's going on? And then it highlights this because it wants you to see how important this is. And then God says, it's not good for man to be alone. And it completes the pattern that you, if you're following the story, should be expecting to appear. And then woman is created and the scriptures say this, the man sees the woman and he says, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of man, Ish. And just like man and woman sound similar in English, in Hebrew, Isha and Ish sound the same. They're patterns, they're pairs, meant to come together. And then that coming together is outlined in the next verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The two functionally different equal opposites, male, female, come together, and they have a one flesh union. And this is what Jesus points to. He skips Deuteronomy. And he goes, don't you know from the beginning, God established this one flesh union. And he says, what God establishes, men should not break. We shouldn't tear that apart. And in that, Jesus is articulating this idea that there is a physical and spiritual bonding that occurs in the sexual union of a man and a woman. This is, um, by the way, what makes um, divorce and part of the reason why God in the scripture says he hates it is because Divorce is incredibly painful. 
you have two people who are united physically, emotionally, spiritually into, there's a fusion at the core of their being. There's a fusion of heart, mind, soul, and flesh. And what happens is, is when that is torn apart, there is a tearing of, of the very fabric of that fusion. And for those of you who have experienced that, you know what I'm talking about. So I don't say that to make anyone feel bad. All the contrary, it's more to say, you know what the tearing apart of that fabric feels like. When that fusion is ripped apart, it is extremely painful. You wouldn't want anyone to feel that. The hurt and pain and feelings of betrayal or abandonment, it it hurts at the core of your being. And so Jesus is saying this, this is not the way it should be. Now, a couple important notes on this. Jesus creates the pairs to come together and form a, a union, and then that union creates something that benefits the created order, creation. So when God gives his sexual ethics for men and women in this idea of a one flesh union, he's not doing it to be like oppressive because people in the world today will look at Christian sexual ethic and be like, oh, they're so oppressive, like the, the Christian teachings are holding people back. It's like, it's, that's the opposite. Christ's sexual ethics are given for the flourishing of humanity. They are given so that human beings flourish and live a good life. It is best for there to be a one flesh union where mom and dad love each other and they have a household where there's stability and covenant and commitment and that stability produces healthier families and healthier families produce healthier cultures and so on. So it's not just some like arbitrary thing. God gives us these rules for our own good. And I say that because there's insanity regarding sexual ethics and I wanna be crystal clear for young people like, God's plan is good. What does he say after every consecutive day? This is good, this is good, this is good. And this one flesh union is good. So let's read that response one more time with all of that in in our mind. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now here's the trap. Then they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, first off, did Moses command anybody to divorce their wife? No, he gave allowance or permission in the situation that was outlined in Deuteronomy 24. Nevertheless, they're like, well, why is Moses doing this? But nevertheless, the trap is still set. I mean, do you see this? Because when they say, well, why did Moses say this? They're not saying, why did Moses say this? They're saying, why does the law of Moses say this? And when they say the law of Moses, they're not just saying, why did the law of Moses say this? They're saying, why did God say this? So that's the trap. Oh, we got a question for you about marriage and divorce and the allowance that Moses gave. 
And by the way, we're in the southern region, region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. Take out the recorder type of thing. <clears throat> so how does Jesus respond to the trap? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus is saying, you don't understand. Like, it wasn't God's intent for there to be divorce. In the law of Moses, God establishes guardrails or boundaries or a fence to keep human wickedness from exploding. In other words, sometimes the law of Moses will point to an ideal. Sometimes it will put restraints or boundaries on human stubbornness and hardness of heart. And so he's like, Moses didn't want anyone to divorce their wives, but in a corrupt world, the law of Moses governing the people of Israel put boundaries on what could be done. And then he says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, Jesus is being incredibly consistent here. And there's a logic to this that you have to follow. It's not just, oh, there's this really bad sin of adultery and that gives you grounds for divorce. That's not the case. Sexual immorality, adultery by definition, establishes a new one flesh union with another person. It breaks the covenant and breaks the original one flesh union because it creates a new one flesh union. So by definition, it's breaking the original covenant. When you commit adultery, in your body, you are embodying a breaking of the original covenant and you are establishing a new one flesh union. And so Jesus says, that's the one thing that breaks it. By definition, it does so. <clears throat> now, a couple important notes. One, just because there is sexual immorality doesn't mean that reconciliation and restoration can't take place. It doesn't always take place. We see, we see that often, but God can still work miracles. And in this church and in churches all across the country, there are marriages who have had, they, are, they have been broken, what appears to be beyond repair. And God does the miraculous in his grace and mercy and somehow reconciliation and restoration happen. And so that happens, that, that's a real thing. And so we, we, you keep that in mind as we strive for that. Additionally, um, we know that Paul the Apostle later in the scriptures would give another allowance. Well, it appears as if it's another type of an allowance, but I don't think it is. Paul the Apostle would later say that if, an, if a believing spouse is abandoned by their unbelieving spouse and they're free from that marriage. Then you can get into all the details of what that means and, and why Paul's arguing what he's doing. But I think what Paul's doing, and this follows a deep kind of thread that, thread that runs through the scripture, is that there are certain things like abandonment and I would also argue abuse that by definition break the one flesh union. They just do so by definition. And so um, we have to keep in mind that later on in scripture, there's some other things that are listed as things that can break the one flesh union, but that shouldn't tempt us to go, oh, Paul lists one, so there's probably tons of these other ones that we could just get in there. Because the tendency of human beings 
is to ask, like, where is the line? So I know when that line is crossed, I can do this. Or on the opposite end, where's the line so I can get as close to it as possible and just hang out there? And that's what people are doing in Jesus' day. What can I do to get out of a marriage? So let me, let me put that in another example that will make that make sense. Um, let's say there's a, there's a young couple and they love each other. They're in their early 20s and they're in love and everything's perfect. He writes her poems. She, yeah, that's great. And, you know, they were raised in the church. They're Christian. And they remember in youth group hearing about how premarital sex is, is wrong, that sex is reserved for the covenant of marriage. Let me take a quick side trail from that. Uh, yes, young people, sex is reserved for marriage. Often the talk of premarital sex is only reserved for young people before they're married. But I'm telling you, somehow, uh, even in the church world, we think like, yeah, it's for young people, but let, let's say I'm older and I've already been married and stuff. Uh, it's not really as bad to have premarital sex after I've been divorced. Like, premarital sex, whether you're 18 or 100, <laughs> is wrong. Sex is reserved for marriage. It establishes the covenant of the one flesh union. Okay, now back to our couple in love. <laughs> they say... Yeah, uh, you know, the youth pastor said we shouldn't be having premarital sex. That's reserved for marriage. Okay, good. Um, but, like, where's the line? Like, how, like, how far is too far? Like, because what happens? If you tell them, here's the line where it's too far or too far, do you know what happens. They're going to go right to that very line and spend the rest of their time together right on the edge of the Jordan, right on the other side of the Jordan. And they're gonna say, this is the line, they're gonna camp out right there. And so what you're doing is you're saying, you, what you're, the question begins at a fundamentally wrong place. The question begins at the place these types of questions begin. What can I get away with? How far is too far? Because I wanna know where that line is. I'm a good Christian, I won't cross it. I'm not gonna cry, I'm a good Christian. Rather, the question should be, how can we, in our relationship, most honor, serve, and glorify God. And if you start with that, the question isn't, how far can we get? Same idea, what's going on here. People wanna know, where's the line? Where's the line, man? And Jesus goes, look, we drew some lines in Deuteronomy because of your own wickedness and stubbornness and hardness of heart. But make no mistake about it, the ideal is what God brings together, let no man separate. That's the ideal that we should be striving for. And so we just want to, want to be careful of how we're approaching these, these texts. <coughs> Matthew 19, it goes on. This is how you know Jesus' standard of marriage and sex is so high. This is how you know, because you may be saying, I don't think Jesus really meant to be that strict. Like, look, listen to the disciples' response. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry at all. You know, we like the if she spoils the dish thing. But now Jesus is doing this lifelong covenant, monogamous, one flesh union. You really want to sign up for life for that? And the disciples are, better not to marry at all. And Jesus responds with this. Not everyone 
can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. That's mysterious. It's a weird, that's a weird saying. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This, this, this gets to the importance of going verse by verse in the scripture, and one of the reasons why we love going through big books of the Bible like Matthew verse by verse is because it forces you to get to passages like this. Like, there, wasn't, there would never be a time in the sermon series planning where we're like, yeah, you know what November needs? Eunuch Sunday. We're gonna talk about the three different types of eunuchs. It's gonna be a great sermon series, gonna have all kinds of insights, small group curriculum. Like, it'll never happen. It'll never happen. Nevertheless, here we are. There's sometimes... Um, uh, Pastor Sam and I will be looking at like this, like what's coming up next week for the sermon, and sometimes like, oh, that's a great passage, and, so, and then there's sometimes, okay, what's next? And you go, oh, that'll be fun. <laughs> Divorce, remarriage, and eunuchs. So what's going on? Okay, first off, the word eunuch. That's a foreign word to us. Uh, for the G-rated version, a eunuch is someone who's had their male reproductive organs removed. And it was quite common in Jesus' day for a number of reasons. It could be done as a punishment. It was done often to defeated soldiers as for POWs, as POWs. It was also done to men who served in royal courts around the females of the royal court. So as a way to say that these men can't um, harm the women in the royal court. It was also done by pagan priests who worshiped false gods and goddesses as a way to show their devotion. So it was quite common in Jesus' day. And in this text, Jesus outlines three different types of eunuchs. First, in verse 12, there are eunuchs from birth. And this category, category would be people who were born missing or uh, an, a completely not functioning part of their male reproductive anatomy. So there's something that happened at birth that threw this off. Then two, eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. This is the most popular category, what I just addressed, as punishment, POWs, uh, people who served in the royal courts. And then this third category, uh, and then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus isn't speaking literal here. He's talking about people who are committing themselves not to get married, remain in singleness, and to not have children so that they could, without distraction or division, focus completely on the work of the ministry. Now, historically, there have been people who have interpreted that literally. There's an interesting story from church history about one church um, leader who someone said uh, literally castrated himself to obey this command. And then uh, the story goes, whether it's true or not, is that down the road, he got better at like his biblical interpretation skills and looked back and was like, man, that was a bad decision. <laughs> a bad mistake. Now, think about this. Jesus is introducing a third category. You need to understand that this wasn't like a popular, it wasn't like a popular thing in Jewish culture in the first century. It's, it's to marry and have children. That's the blessed life. And children are a blessing from God. But Jesus is saying, in his kingdom, there are people who are going to be so devoted to ministry and the advancement of the gospel that they adopt a lifestyle that won't have spouse or children so they can be completely devoted. So think about um, 
let's say you're a missionary and you feel called to go to North Korea to preach the gospel. That wouldn't be wise to bring your wife and children on that missionary track with you, trek with you. Uh, but there are some people who say, I'm so devoted, I'm, not do- I'm, I'm just completely, I'm gonna remain single and focus on the Lord. And Jesus is doing something incredible here. He's giving a special place for singleness, which was not known in the day. And there's a way to be single in which you are less likely to be distracted from serving the Lord. John the Baptist was single. Jesus was single. Paul the Apostle was single. And Paul the Apostle said, I wish that you could all be single and celibate like me so you could be completely devoted to the Lord. But Paul is also a realist, so then he, then he writes, but I know it ain't gonna happen with most of you. So no, it's all good, but I wanna honor this path where people remain single to be completely devoted to the Lord. And then the section ends. Then, Jesus, that, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This is fascinating. Jesus is talking about marriage and the one flesh union of marriage, how God intends it to be unbroken. And then what Matthew tells us happens after is the introduction of children. There's a story about children. And oftentimes in our modern culture, we can separate like marriage and children, like, like they're, they're, not, they're not bound up together. But there's something profound going on here. It's like, no, we're gonna talk about marriage and this one flesh union, and then we're gonna talk about how precious children are and how Jesus lets the children come to him. And this is something you could reflect on for like the rest of your life. It's really this profound. When a man and a woman come together, and there's the establishment of a one flesh union. The design of that, the design by God, is that as they love each other and as they express love for each other in the most intimate, powerful way in the sexual union, that that love then creates out of nothing an image bearer, a new life, a new being that reflects the glory and goodness of God. Like seriously, that's, that's worth reflecting on. Out of the love that's expressed in a sexual union that God designed, new image bearers are produced. It is from the abundance and overflow of the love that men and women have for each other in marriage that children pour forth. And Jesus, even though he is single, he loves the children and the children like coming to him. It's important to note, um, there's something to do with Christ-likeness that has to do with uh, approachability of children. If you're gonna be Christ-like, if you're gonna be like Jesus, there's something to be said about how children approach you and how you respond to them when they approach you. Because the disciples do what? Get these children away, man. Doesn't matter if Jesus is tired. Doesn't matter if he's been teaching. Doesn't matter if he's just tried to be tricked by the Pharisees to get him in trouble with the highest ruling authority. Jesus has time for the children. He has time for them. They are produced out of the love that the functionally different equal opposites share among each other. Now, 
Why is this, why is this so important? Why does, why does Jesus establish marriage in creation? It's not, it's not arbitrary. Jesus isn't just saying this. Is, marriage is like a really powerful social construct or con- contract that we can see glimpses of in the created order. Like there's mo- it's more to it. God creates with these patterns so that marriage would be the pinnacle. But it's not so that marriage could be the pinnacle. It's that marriage would then point to something beyond itself. Marriage points to something beyond itself. And Paul the Apostle would take us there in Ephesians chapter five. He says this, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Follow that logic. When a husband loves his wife, he loves himself. That, that's not just like, oh, it's because he's, he really loves her and in loving her, he gets joy out of it. That certainly should be a, a part of it too, but it's more than that. When a husband loves the wife, he loves himself. Why? Because that is himself. And when a wife loves her husband, that's herself. Because there's a one flesh union. When you love your wife, you are taking care of yourself because there's a unity that's very powerful and strong. When you marry someone, there's no longer just I and me. There's us and we. There's us. There's we. And it goes on, for no one hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Christ loves the church. And then verse 30, because we are members of his body. The logic here is profound. And this is where Paul takes it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul quotes Genesis just like Jesus quoted Genesis when they talk about marriage. And then here's the main point, verse 32. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says, look, I know this is gonna be hard to understand. It kinda, it's kind of weird. It's a mystery. I know it's, a mis- it's mysterious and we're barely gonna glimpse it, but I'm telling you, this is profound. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. Remember those functionally different equal opposites. It climaxes with the pinnacle pair, man and woman coming together. That union, the one flesh union that's established in marriage is supposed to be a sign and symbol pointing you to a greater marriage, the marriage of Christ and his church. So there's all these little marriages here on earth, but when marriages are healthy and centered and doing the right thing the way God intended them to do, they are like little mini pictures everywhere on earth that point to a greater love. When a husband and, love, a husband and wife love each other in the way God intended, they're a little living, walking, breathing picture of a different marriage, the marriage between Christ and his church. In the Old Testament, you, you see language about God and his bride, Israel. And then in the New Testament, you get the same language. There's the, the good and faithful husband, Jesus, the bridegroom, and then the church is the bride of Christ. So marriage is an institution embedded in the created order pointing to the ultimate marriage. In human marriages, we ought to see an example of the love of God that he has for his church. So this is what, you, what I tell young people who are getting married. 
When you enter into marriage, you're going to create a oneness and a unity. And you should love each other with such devotion that an unbelieving world looks at your marriage and says, there's something different about you guys. Like, what's up with that? And you say, well, we're trying to mirror the love of God for his people. We're being faithful to that covenant. And that's not to mean like it's always all good, right? Because faithfulness to the covenant isn't important if everything's always all good. If it was always all good, <laughs> like you wouldn't need a big time covenant. But it says in the midst of, of our problems and issues, whatever it may be, our faithfulness to the covenant points to the faithfulness and love of God. That's the power of it. So what are we to, what are we to do from that? Well, one thing is, is you tell men, and I want to tell especially you young men who are about to bring children in the world who have young kids, you want to be the type of man whom your kids can look at and they say, I know my dad's not perfect, but when I look at how dad loves mom, I get a picture of how much God loves the church, how much God loves me. You want to know how to let your kids know how much God loves them? Fathers, love your wives to such a degree that your child can in good conscience say, the way dad loves mom, I know that's the way God loves me. That's how it's supposed to operate. And likewise, moms, you commit yourself in faithfulness and love to your husband so that your kids can say, man, the way mom loves dad, that's the way like we as the church ought to love Jesus. Now don't take that too far and be like, yeah, because I'm the Lord of the, like you're not Jesus. But in the analogy, that's what it is. That's, that's Christ and the church is mirrored in marriage. And let me tell you something. The, out of all the problems we got, we got so many problems in the world, so many problems in our culture, so many problems everywhere. And everyone's got solutions to everything. If, imagine what would happen if just one generation of fathers, one generation of fathers loved their wives in a manner in such a degree that the kids would say, that is how God loves the church and that's how much God loves me and that's more than I can even imagine. One generation of experiencing that type of commitment from mom and dad would change the world. In one generation, the entire world would be changed. And we know this statistically, this isn't just empty rhetoric. The world would change. And so, that's why marriage is a big deal. And Jesus says, you strive for this to the best of your ability. You love each other and you are a living, walking, breathing example of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is marriage important? Because it's meant to point people to the gospel, to God's love for his people. So, summary thoughts on, on marriage as a whole. One, crystal clear. It is a lifelong, one flesh union between the functionally different equal opposites. A man and a woman coming together, and it's supposed to be good and healthy. And for those of you who have experienced good marriages, you know there's like nothing more wonderful than 
like a marriage where it's healthy and two people are in love with each other. It's like one of the greatest graces God can give you. Two, we know that that union, out of that union, from the love experience in that, flows new image bearers. And new image bearers are best served when there's harmony in the household between mom, dad, and children. Third, we also know reality, and I know reality, that for many of you, you're, go, you're like, you're in a great marriage and it's all, you're like, yes, it's, and some of you, you're overwhelmed with guilt and shame. You're feeling the mistakes of past. You're having all this hurt and pain resurface of things you've done, things that have happened to you. The third thing to know is that there is always grace and forgiveness readily available. Like, it, God didn't in, put these laws so that, you know, he put this line there so he goes, yeah, the second they cross it, man, I'm gonna get them. It was for your good. And when you broke his law, it was sin and wrong, but he's the good and faithful husband willing to forgive. Fourth, uh, the reason why God hates divorce is because it's so painful. It's, it's horrible. It hurts those involved and it hurts the mom and dad or the husband and wife and the children. And so God says, this is, this is not good for my people. Fifth, comment um, whenever we talk about complex things like this there's a thousand questions that arise like I know there's probably like, well, Isaac what about this what about this what about my particular situation and what you need to know is that the scriptures don't have answers for every last question what they do is they give you some parameters and some answers and you are supposed to in wisdom use that and apply that to your situation and you do your best to submit to scripture whether you like it or not, and, and use wisdom and the guidance of the Spirit to figure those things out. But I do want to say this, because whenever there's talks like this, there's some of you who are going like, I'm in, I've been divorced, I'm in my second marriage, my third marriage, whatever it may be, and you're going, asking questions like, well, I divorced my wife and it wasn't for the reasons that Jesus listed and now I'm in a new one flesh union marriage and so what do I do when the first one wasn't rightfully done? Whatever covenant you are currently in, however you got there, whether it was good or bad, however you got there, you are to faithfully honor the covenant that you are now in. You do your best to honor that and strive for the ideal in your current situation, however you got there. A few closing words as we prepare for communion in one, one last song of worship. Jesus is the good and faithful husband. And so, because he is the good and faithful husband, there's a word from him for every single person in this room, wh wherever you're at. So for those of you who, just talking about this is painful because you had your one flesh union broken. Maybe it was adultery or abandonment, but either way, you experienced the pain of someone you gave your life to damaging that fusion of flesh. And they hurt you in tremendous ways that even just talking about this stuff like you're barely holding it together. Um, what you need to know is that you have a good and faithful husband who will never leave you or forsake you. He will never hurt you the way you've been hurt. He will never harm you the way you've been harmed. He loves you and he lays it all on the line for you. 
whoever this world has treated you, whoever loves have treated you, Jesus is your good and faithful husband. He will not leave you. He won't forsake you. He lays down his life for you. He'll never hurt you like that. For those of you who have been the person who is in the wrong, you're the one who cheated. You're the one who abandoned. You're the one who forsook the covenant. I want you to know that that's a grave sin. Don't make light of it. It's a grave sin. Should never have happened. But I also want you to know that the whole sweep of scripture has this metaphor going on. That yes, God himself is the husband, but the metaphor says that the spouse is the unfaithful covenant-breaking spouse. And when Jesus comes, the imagery that's given is that in spite of our unfaithfulness, in spite of our covenant breaking, Jesus is the good and faithful husband who wants to renew his covenant vows independent of your actions. So if you were the one in the wrong, there is grace and forgiveness and a place for you at his table. And for those of you who are in happy marriages, and you're going like, yeah, all this, this difficult stuff isn't not even applied to us. We're great marriage, everything is good. Um, earthly marriage is the living, walking, breathing symbol of the greater reality, which means however happy your current marriage makes you, however good your current marriage is, it's a shadow compared to the marriage you will experience when the groom comes for his bride. The best marriage in this room on its best day is a shadow to what you will know in Christ when he returns for his bride. So God's word has something for everyone, no matter where you find yourself. He is the good and true and faithful husband. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Emphasis on betrayed. Handed over. Kicked out. Handed over to be killed. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and remember. And so we remember the good and faithful and true husband. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. It's the cup of the new covenant. And as we say here, this is our turn to pledge our allegiance to our Lord. And so we are his church, his people. In one sense, Jesus is coming back for you. But in another sense, he's not coming back for you. Jesus is coming back for his bride. Both can be true. And Jesus is coming back for us, his people, his bride, and so as we wait for the good and faithful husband to return, we pledge our loyalty, our faithfulness, our allegiance. Lord, help us to be faithful to the very end. And so, Father, we close with worship. We close with thanksgiving. We want to respond in faithfulness to what you've done for us. I ask that you, through your spirit, would minister to all the different people in this room, different backgrounds, different stories, that 
the story of your son Jesus being the faithful groom would be good news to every single person in this room, no matter what phase or walk of life they're in. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.